Welcome to the True Condos Podcast with Andrew LaFleur, the place to get the truth on the Toronto condo market and condo investing in Toronto. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show Igor Dragovich. Igor is uh, an urbanist, he's a land economist, he's a policymaker, he does a lot of things. He's got a great blog, a personal blog about um, housing, real estate, housing markets. Um, and Igor recently wrote a fantastic post, which we're going to be talking about in a minute. But Igor, thank, thank you for being here and welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be here. Um, so yeah, so Igor, maybe you just introduce yourself a little bit uh, for the people who don't know who you are, don't maybe don't follow you on Twitter. Um, we'll certainly include a link to your profiles and everything. But tell us a little bit about yourself, um, who you are. And why are you so passionate about real estate? Sure. Uh, so essentially, I work right now at the province of Ontario uh, within the Ministry of Municipal Affairs and Housing. And I work as a policymaker, focusing mostly on uh, policies that retain and attract jobs to the region. And it's done through essentially land use planning and, and a mixture of economics. And uh, essentially, I've decided to write this article because it's something that's a big passion of mine, right? The interest in, in, in real estate and, and housing and, and urban development. And for instance, when I started working in, in the real estate field, I used to look around and I saw a lot of building activity across the region. And I thought to myself, I'm like, this is this doesn't look too sustainable, right? I mean, looking at the infrastructure investment that we're making, all the buildings that are taking place, this doesn't look sustainable. But once I sat back, looked at the numbers, examined all the you know, information from various banks and things like that and looked at how our economy is functioning, it turned out that, you know, the market's actually quite stable here. And I and I wanted to kind of write some articles about that to not have people think that it's all doom and gloom when it comes to the market here, that there's also a positive side to it, that the market's actually doing quite well and a lot better than a lot of people think, right? So I think that's that's where the passion comes from. That's great, yeah. And one of the reasons, Igor, I wanted to have you on the show as well was uh, for this interview was just your you're sort of outside the real estate industry in in, in a sense. You're um, you're at the government level. Um, you're not directly related, or you don't, you don't benefit or or not benefit from the real estate industry itself. Uh, and that's obviously one of the things that the skeptics or the critics of of the real estate markets will always say is, oh well. You know, whenever you hear good news about the housing market, it's it's just uh, it's just coming from, you know, shills or whatever inside the industry who are just pumping the industry up, and and uh, they're just so biased. Look at you know real estate agents or whatever, myself, people like me or whatever, we get criticized for that. So it's great to, uh, it's I think it's very interesting and and definitely worthwhile for everyone listening to to um, to go to your blog to read your article. And your other articles as well, and understand um, your perspective on things, and and um, do their own evaluation. So, let's uh, let's jump right in. It's a great article, lots of great content. Um, again, I encourage everyone to go and read it, and we'll include a link to it in the show notes for this episode. But um, you basically go over, um, as far as I can tell, about seven or eight points, major points of of why, from your analysis, why a housing crash is very unlikely to happen in Toronto, in the greater Toronto area. And so I thought it'd be great. Let's just um, dive in. We'll, we'll see how many we can get through in our time here today. But let's start with the, the first point you bring up and tell us, um, tell us about that. That is debt levels. So a uh, big concern you, we hear a lot about in the media is uh, the debt levels are at all-time highs and 
Canadians have so much debt and household debt and all these buzzwords we're hearing as it being a very bad thing or making allusions to the um, U.S. crash and their debt levels and things of that nature. So what what was your what's your analysis on the on the household debt and how it relates to real estate? So essentially, um, you know, one thing to understand about debt is that we often look at it, uh, you know, household debt to disposable income. So that is one measure, and by that measure, we're at you know 163.7 percent, I think, you know, which is which is very high, and it is it surpassed the, the level that the U.S. has been uh, since the 2008 you know, crash, the, the recession that took place. But there's also another way of looking at it, and it's household debt to assets. And when you look at that, we actually notice that Canadian households possess $5 worth of assets for every $1 worth of debt, which is very, very positive. Right, right. Do you have any idea, uh, I don't know if you know the numbers of the U.S. situation, it's often compared to for this one. Uh, what were the numbers like in their assets to debt uh, ratio? You know, when they had their crash, do you have any idea on that? Well, unfortunately, I do not. But essentially, what happened in the U.S. was that a lot of their uh, mortgages and a lot of the debt was was in in homeowners were who were homeowners who held debt that were at risk of defaulting, right? Which is not the case really here, uh, because I mean, debt is linked to you know credit scores of mortgage purchasers. And then as well as subprime lending, which are, you know, credit scores of mortgage purchasers are, are doing quite well here. It's, it's, it's we're getting a lot more uh, mortgage purchases with higher credit scores coming in. And not only that, subprime lending is very low here, right? So we're kind of protected from those, from those sense, right? But the thing with debt also is that it's, we may have a high percent of you know, household debt to disposable income. But when you look at other countries, especially some of the most livable countries in the world, which include Denmark and Netherlands and, and Norway and Switzerland, they have way higher household debt levels than us, right? Especially a country like Denmark, which is almost at 300%. Right. Right, right. Yeah, so, I mean, relative to other countries, Canada's not that bad. And, and like you said, most importantly, uh, if you're looking at debt, you've got to look at the full picture of debt and you can't look at debt without looking at assets. And that's, that's a great stat there that on average, Canadian households have $5 of assets for every $1 of debt. So, exactly. um, and there's, we always talk about this good debt and bad debt, right? I mean, just because you have debt, it doesn't, I mean, if you have credit card debt, obviously that is a bad debt to have. If you have um, debt related to, you know, education or debt related to housing, um, especially housing that's appreciating in value, that's, actually um a very good thing to have it can be a very good thing for creating wealth exactly that it's it's almost an investment right with you know education as well as a debt right absolutely yeah absolutely let's um another let's talk about another point uh from your article and that's um overvaluation so again something we hear about all the time in the media and from from um you know doom and gloomers in the real estate market uh you know, Canadian housing is overvalued by, you know, pick a number. It seems every, every six months, there's a new number that yeah. somebody's declaring is the, the number, uh, whether it's 20, 20%, 30%, what is some crazy, crazy people think 50%, whatever. But, uh, so w what did you find on, uh, that point of is, is Canada's, um, or is Toronto real estate overvalued? So what I think about that is essentially, you know, it, it's, 
I like the point that you made. It's every day there's something new coming out, whether it's 10%, 20%, 30%, or as much as you know, 63%, I think, that Deutsche Bank uh, uh, called for. And what's interesting is when you look at all these organizations or banks that have called for these or valuation estimates, a lot of them are not Canadian. And they're, you know, major, you know, things like OECD or Deutsche Bank or Fitch's ratings, things like that. So these things look at things that uh, I think like a 30,000 foot level, right? So they don't look at the nuances within individual urban markets, things like that. So you can't really compare, I think, was it Ben Myers who said, you know, a condo in downtown Toronto to a single attached home in Regina, Saskatchewan, right? So things like that are important to consider. But in addition, it's the fact that a lot of these um, overvaluation claims are based off of using a method to determine it, something like a home price to income or a home price to rent ratio, which, okay, there is some merit to it, but it's not a very effective measure because it doesn't take into account, for instance, dropping interest rates and all the carrying costs associated with it, right? Absolutely. Exactly. You start to notice that prices of homes are actually quite in line with their historical averages. And it's, this is something that uh, Eric Lachelle in one of his, from RBC, looked at in one of his reports, and, and, and he estimated that it's about, you know, how homes could actually be undervalued by about 4% when it comes to this, you know, this kind of, when you look at, I think, variable mortgages, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, that's, that one drives me crazy personally when I see these over, you know, it's overvalued. Well, why is it overvalued? Well, look at the price to rent ratio. You know, it's price to rent, price to rent. You know, historically we have this and now we're way out of line. Well, sure, historically we had, you know, 10% interest rates. <laughs> and, yeah. and now we have 2% interest rates. I mean, it's such a, a huge piece of the equation that if you're taking that out and not considering that, it, it just can create really wonky, off-kilter uh, conclusions on what's going on in the in the housing market. Exactly. And I mean, when you go and buy a house, say it's a $500,000 home, you don't give $500,000 right to the bank and be like, here you go. That's, I paid it off, right? It's, there's, you know, you got to put a down payment, interest rates take into account into this, all this, the amortization period, all of those things, right? Impact what your monthly payment is or whether it's a biweekly or whatever the payment you set out. Um, and I also think that, you know, what is an important consideration here is that, you know, people say that homes are overvalued in Toronto, Vancouver, but when you look at it at a global scale, right, and I think Ben Myers wrote an article very recently about this where he looked at our, you know, Toronto and Vancouver's rankings on on, uh, on a global scale in terms of livability, quality of life features, things like that, and noted that, you know, these cities are consistently ranked very high up there, but their homes relative to cities like New York, London, Hong Kong, San Francisco are a fraction of the price. Yes. Yeah. Are they overvalued on a global scale? Right. That's that's one one question we have also have to consider. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Overvalued compared to what? Great question. Yeah. Um, let's uh, let's keep moving. Go to the next one. Your next uh, point that I think is great is on overbuilding. So, you know, especially related to the condo market, that's probably the number one thing you hear people saying. Um, Oh, they're built. We're building too many condos. I can't believe how many condos are. Look at all the cranes everywhere. Um, you know, it, 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 there's a condo bubble because there's so many condos. It must be true. Um, what did you find on this question? Are we overbuilding? So essentially, I, I wrote an article 
about, I, would, I think in March of this year, that looked at uh, the demographic impacts on the housing market. So I looked at immigration levels, you know, across the whole country and determined what number of that, you know, new migrants were coming to specifically the Toronto area and Ontario and what was our natural increase and essentially determined that we were growing, you know, the greater Toronto area was growing by about 100,000 people a year. And it's forecast to grow by 100,000 people a year or more till 2041, right? This is set out in provincial policies. This is adopted by municipal official plans, and this is what we have to plan to. So what happens is when you have 100,000 people coming every year, and you have since, you know, the 90s, and you're, you're going to continue to have this growth, you got to build a certain amount of homes to accommodate those people, right? And this was essentially something that Ben Myers had also looked at previously. He noted that, you know, the ratio should be around four homes per every 10 residents, give or take roughly. And when you look at that, you know, I've examined CMHC numbers of completed and unabsorbed units, and I've noticed that we're actually never been doing, you know, the condo market has never been faring better than today. And what's happening is you're getting 90, you know, over 90% every year completed homes that are absorbed which is a great statistic right i think right right so the homes uh yeah the, the homes the homes that are being built are they're pre-sold especially condos uh you know condo projects before you even start construction have to be 70 75 pre-sold by the time that the condo building is finished you know on average what is it 95 96 percent uh sold out well exactly yeah and I mean, you can't get financing unless you're going to finance the whole project privately and yourself. You're not going to get financing from a bank unless you essentially pre-sold, like you said, 75 to 80% of your units. Simple as that, right? Mm-hmm. And there was... Uh, yeah, sorry? I'm sorry, and there was this other issue this year um, around uh, the CMHC. They came out with some headlines and that got a lot of press. We've covered it on this podcast and in articles and hopefully people... Uh, we'll know what I'm talking about as we discuss this, but again, we we should talk about um, you know CMHC's uh, numbers this year, and I, I know you looked at that as well. They came out with this sort of alarmist headline that we have you know all-time high uh, numbers of completed but unabsorbed condo units. Um, but uh, there was another side to that story, and you took a look at that. Absolutely, yeah. So essentially, you know, CMHC came out. Uh, I think it was in May. 2015, and they they reported about an increase of, you know, a huge amount of increase of, of unsold condo units from about a thousand, I think, in December to almost three thousand in May. So in a matter of four or five months, you had, you know, a jump in about two thousand units. And essentially, the next month, CMHC reported a drop all of a sudden in about eight hundred units, right, to a number of, you know, give or take nineteen hundred, if I can recall correctly. And this kind of volatility essentially encouraged urban nation, uh, you know, ben, Benjamin Tal of CIBC and Ben Myers of Fortress to look at this data and, and, and understand, you know, is this, is this actually happening? What's, what, where's the issue? And urban nation, you know, looked specifically at where CMHC reported this, which was in the Regent Park neighborhood. And they noted that, okay, so this, in fact, all the units there have been absorbed and then they're completed. So clearly there's a mismatch. And then CNBC came out reporting that, oh, there was a paperwork, um, you know, paperwork problem. So, you know, they admitted their findings were inaccurate, their initial findings. 
Mm-hmm. But this was our yeah. This was already after all the headlines had gone out that there was this, <laughs> and everyone was out there. The whole the world was believing that this was true. You know, it's everyone catches the first headline, but nobody is going to pay attention to the retraction later. <laughs> exactly right. And then I mean, what was good was that Ben Myers and Benjamin Tal also came out and and said that you have to understand the context when it comes to this, and that you know, and for instance, when you look at the housing starts in the region in 2012, there was. You know, this was a big year for housing starts. So when you looked at housing starts in 2012, and given that a lot of these are condos, condos are going to take a few years to complete. So 2015 was that kind of year where we saw a lot of completions take place, right? And both Benjamin, uh, sorry, Ben Myers and Benjamin Tell noted that, you know, we've had about three times the number of completed units in the first half of 15 than the level of completions in previous years, right? And that it only this, this, uh, unsold units only represented about 6.3% of the completed supply. So over 90% of units were absorbed, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, uh, great reminder to all of us to, you know, to, to be critical of, of what we're reading in, in the headlines and the papers and the news in the news media, um, because there's always other, other side to the story. 100%. Um, what uh, what about foreign buyers? I mean, do, do you think foreign buyers are a threat to our market? Now, I wouldn't say they're a threat to the market. I think that they could turn into a, an issue. Now, I don't see it as being something uh, overly significant because uh, CMHC recently came out with their with their foreign uh, their report on foreign ownership of condos and, and Canadian housing markets and. Uh, although they noted that there was a huge spike in or a huge growth in, in foreign purchases over, over between 2014 and 2015, um, the rate of uh, foreign ownership is actually quite low in Toronto, and it's it's at about 3.2 percent, mm-hmm. the highest rate in downtown at around 5.8 percent. So when I looked at those numbers, the first thing that came to me was that wow, that's surprisingly low. Personally, I thought that. You know, it would be a little bit higher, maybe in the teens, right, foreign, foreign purchasing. But before you kind of delve into, you know, understanding the numbers and whether it's good or bad, there's a few things that have to be considered. And one is CMHC only looked at condos. So they didn't look at single-attached semis, row, row houses, townhomes, things like that. And, and that could change the number, up or down, you know, most likely down, but I, I don't want to, you know, make an assumption here. And then not only that, but what is a foreign owner or 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 a foreign resident? What 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 is that? Right? Essentially, CMHC gave a definition within their report, but it's hard to classify a foreign owner um, be, in a city like Toronto, especially because half the people in the city aren't born in Canada. Right. So what happens is that money could be coming from overseas, but it could be to you know, a family that are Canadian citizens here. And right. For instance, what happened was with my family, my father, about 10, 15 years ago, he worked for a number of years in Europe. And while we and my mother and my sisters, we lived here in Canada, and he provided some money for a down payment on a home that we had bought. And that money wasn't made in Canada. That's foreign money. Does that classify as a foreign purchase? Right, right. Canadian citizens, right? So things like that, we have to kind of, you know, it's it's a really murky field, I believe, right, when it comes to this. And mm-hmm. I don't think it's a, it's a huge issue. I think it's a huge issue when you start seeing a lot of foreign buying and not um, 
non-occupancy of these units, right? So I think in London, England, they're, they're having some problems where they call these, you know, there's these transparent towers, as they call them, because they can see through them all day, every day, because nobody lives there. They're all perched up, but nobody's in there, right? So I think that's when an issue could arise, ultimately. Right, right. Yeah, London, great example. Certainly, we are not there, uh, not even close to that, but it could come to that at some point, but it's it's certainly not the case at all today. Um, you also looked at uh, price of oil and how that might affect the Toronto real estate market. I don't think it's something that we talk about uh, enough and, and uh, its potential impact on Toronto real estate. Um, what What's your take on the price of oil and how that could affect us? So when oil fell, it was, you know, I think, we all knew that Alberta was going to be hit pretty hard, and they've they've faced some some issues. Uh, you know, a lot of companies there have been facing issues, and and, and people, you know, employment's it, employment's declined, so the unemployment rate's a little bit higher now. And they're the ones, uh, along with I think maybe Saskatchewan and Newfoundland, which have you know oil producing economies, ones that are would be most impacted by this. Uh, unfortunately. For their, for their case is that we actually get to benefit possibly from these oil prices, right? And what, what we're seeing is is an uptick in export activity, an uptick in manufacturing, the lower Canadian dollars making homes potentially even more appealing to foreign buyers, things like that, right? Um, so there's some benefits that could be, you know, derived from these lower oil prices. And it's likely going to benefit the Toronto region and Ontario because we have a pretty a uh, large manufacturing sector here, and a lot of our exports go to the states, right? So there could be benefits seen from those lower, lower oil prices. But, right. Uh, I think that CMHC recently released one of their breath um, tests or whatnot, where they looked at the impact of, of low oil prices uh, remaining at about $35 a barrel on the Canadian economy, and they said that you know, if if they retain that $35 a barrel level for about five, six years, what's going to happen is that housing could drop as much as 25, 26% or so, the value of homes. So there's that. But then again, there's the issue of will oil stay at $35 a barrel for six years, right? So. Right, right. And like you said, I mean, uh, low oil is great for export exporters and manufacturers, which is exactly what, you know, the golden horseshoe, Southern Ontario. That's exactly our base of our economy. And, and, uh, you're also going to get a lot of immigration, um, or, uh, you know, internal immigration from, uh, from Alberta, people coming, leaving Alberta and coming back to Toronto. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, you know, for a while people have been leaving Ontario and, you know, our, our rates of, of, Yep, for a long time. Migrants out was very, I mean, a lot of people were leaving to go to Alberta, for instance, right? Uh, and now that situation might is is going to start flipping around, and we're going to see more people coming back here, right? Which is which is only good for us, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what uh, what about affordability? Um, just the you know the, the people worried and concerned that the as prices just continue to go up, up, up. Uh, how can people continue to afford houses? Won't there just be a point, a breaking point where? Um, or shouldn't we already be at that breaking point? Some people would say that people just can't afford houses anymore, therefore they stop buying them, therefore uh, the housing market will crash. Um, so I don't think just because people stop buying homes, the housing market's 
going to crash. There's, you know, you can fill that void with the rental market, for instance, or a variety of different ways. Um, but I think that affordability is one of those uh, issues that if, if we left it unregulated, it could really cause significant problems down the line. And this wouldn't really only impact the housing market. This will, this will legitimately have a big impact on the broader economy, I feel. And it's, it's a more of a deeper and underlying issue of inequality, right? And, and the divergence of, of, of job creation, the divergence of incomes and classes, things like that, and, and sheltering or, I guess, shutting out certain people that cannot afford to live in a city, right? So it's kind of indirect discrimination, if you may, you know, where, yep. where it's, oh, you know, I can afford to buy a place here, but you can't. Well, that's too bad, right? So there's that. And, you know, I'm, I, I get a little worried sometimes that we're creating, you know, as Richard Florida and, and David Holchansky do a lot of studies on these kinds of uh, factors of in, uh, growing inequality and whatnot. And, and, and they notice that, you know, cities can become these sheltered enclaves for the super rich, right? Something like, for instance, what we see in San Francisco. And I read a really interesting article recently which looked at that it wasn't the tech workers that were actually uh, driving up the prices of homes in San Francisco. It was these, you know, leftist nimbyists who didn't want their neighborhood to change and didn't want to see density right. limited how much you could build there and put a strainer, a finite supply on the amount of developable land. Right, right. right. That's something, yeah, we, we don't talk about at all is the supply side of the equation and uh, and we have that issue growing as well in Ontario with the green belt and and our you know growth policies is there's just we don't have you know developers would love to add more density the market you know clearly would take it but the um, like you said the sort of NIMBY voice is still very very loud in that respect exactly right and I mean I can understand where they're coming from it's a sort of preservationist. Uh, notion of theirs, right? And that makes sense. Um, but at the same time, you know, you can't, you know, cities are, the best cities, uh, you know, they, they thrive off these kind of synergistic relationships created in, in these mixed environments, you know, and, and those are the cities, you know, that will be champions of the future, I feel, right? That the sort of tolerant and inclusive cities. And affordability, another important you know, thing to remember about it is that there's really no clear definition of what affordability is or what affordable housing is, right? I mean, mm. the Planning Act and, and, and the Provincial Policy Statement in Ontario have these, you know, these definitions about it. But the issue is that what is unaffordable and what is affordable? And I think that Ben Myers and me have both uh, written about this where, you know, just because a home is not affordable in the neighborhood that you want to be in doesn't mean that homes are unaffordable across the board. Right, right. Maybe you want to live in downtown Toronto. Yes, of course. I would, personally, I would love to live in Rosedale or Yorkville or, you know, King West, somewhere like that. But can I afford it? Probably not. Can I afford a single detached home? Likely not as well. Right. So right. What's the next best thing? Well, move up, move in or move out. Or, you know, as, as I think George Karras always says it, from real life, it's, it's one of those things where you're going to have to make compromises. And that's what life's about, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's... I think it kind of goes to our Canadianness and our, um, you know, our history, I guess, as a as a country and as a as a region in the country, where you know we're just so used to cheap housing, and uh, <laughs> you know, I think the the main story of the last sort of 
half of the 20th century, the suburban kind of sprawl story, uh, housing was just, you know, in real terms, I guess it was sort of flat and, you know, you just kept building out and out and out and the price of your house just kind of stayed the same or kind of went down as, as you moved further away and, and people were okay with that because, um, you could still move around freely. The traffic, you know, was still flowing and, and transit was, um, you know, relatively keeping up uh, with with the growth but we're, it's a different world now it's a it's a different city today um, you know the the you know when you start adding a hundred thousand people per year um, that change you know that, the city a million people in a decade that's that's a very different city over over only 10 years than it was 10 years before um, the the equation and everything is changing but uh, yeah, that'll, that'll be an interesting trend, I think, to certainly watch and see how Toronto develops, um, particularly the downtown core of Toronto. You know, is, you know, the, are we, you know, is the Manhattanization effect, uh, is that happening? Is it a, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? You know, are we an enclave of the super rich? Um, you know, is that, is that overall, is that good for the, uh, everyone or is that a bad thing? It'd be interesting to see how this, uh, this plays out, but maybe it's a good time, you know, for me to ask you as sort of as an urbanist and thinking about that issue, like where do you see Toronto, you know, how do you see Toronto developing long term? Let's say twenty years from now, what kind of a city do you think Toronto will become um, or should try to become, um, especially in the as it pertains to the, you know, global perspective? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that Toronto is on a tra- on a very, very good trajectory. I find. And for instance, when we go back, say, to the 90s, when, when there was a pretty pretty pronounced recession here, uh, specifically in, in the city and, and in Ontario, you know, that was, that adversely affected the city, right? And economically, the city was not doing well. The, we were losing jobs for about six or seven years straight. And then in about 96, things started to pick up again. Uh, what was interesting was, throughout that time in the 90s, People continued coming, right? So you still yeah. had growth rates of about ninety to one hundred thousand people a year, regardless of, of economic growth uh, and regardless of the recession. Interesting. So what you're seeing is yes, yeah, so what you're seeing is you're seeing a lot of pent up demand uh, left over from the '90s. And now that we've, you know, since '96, that we our economy has picked up and our job growth has been very consistent. You know, I think we could be doing a lot better in that respect, but. It is something that's very stable, uh, and we haven't been that badly impacted by, you know, the most recent recession of 2008-9 and the dot-com bubble. And if you look at the city's employment numbers, that's something very positive, I find, because it just shows our stability and our strength. And that's one aspect I think Toronto really needs to harness. And then the other one is is our our diversity and our tolerance, right? Our slogan is diversity, our strength. And, you know, this is, I think, something very, very unique that personally, I believe Toronto in the whole world does the best job of integrating newcomers in the city. Right. Um, I think that we could probably do a better job at integrating newcomers into, into work. But when it comes to social integration, I think we do a fantastic job. And, you know, that speaks to, you know, how many people here are foreign born, how many people, you know, half the people in Toronto aren't white. And, and that's the point of pride for me, you know, something like that to be like, you know, this is a diverse city. You can meet anybody from anywhere. 
And I think that's something that we have to uh, continue to support and encourage because qualities of tolerance and inclusiveness are only going to become more important. And it's already showing, or I guess we're already seeing how important it is, especially with the situation in Syria, for instance. Right. Yeah. 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 I think in the future, those are some things that we're going to have to focus on in that kind of tolerance and inclusiveness and continue on with that, continue on with our stability uh, and continue to market the city as, as a place where, you know, there's endless array of opportunities and work on, you know, improving our economy so that we're not, not only stable, but that we're actually, you know, stellar, that we're performing, you know, stellar economically, something like that. Mm -hmm. The city will become New York or Chicago or whatever. Uh, I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's personally nice to have comparisons like that, but I think we should strive to become our own, you know, go down our own path and, and not focus on New York. I mean, we can take the best of New York, the best of Chicago, San Francisco, whoever, but create our own, you know, image and unique genuine identity. That's great. Great vision. I like that. Um, and uh, my brain's just firing away. A lot of things you, you brought up, we could talk a lot longer about a lot of those issues. But I uh, do want to respect your time and the time of the listeners here as we are um, getting to the end. So, um, Igor, if, is there any other questions that I didn't ask you about um, this article in particular or the real estate market um, or about Toronto that you wish that I had of asked you? And what would it be? Um, I think I think you covered a lot of great topics. I think one, one thing, um, you know, that's also very important to consider is, is probably the infrastructure kind of, uh, you know, that we're lagging in infrastructure potentially, um, and that there's that there's actually unprecedented interest and investment taking place now. So it, it's it's almost a double-edged sword, I think, right, that, you know, if we don't invest and we don't invest in the right infrastructure in this region, this could be very bad, and it could actually drive business out and people out of here. Um, but if we do, which which I think we are, it could actually, I think, boost our growth and our economy right once once you start to see all these uh you know for example for instance transit projects come to fruition like you know the the young extension into, into york region and and the eglinton cross down to here ontario lrt and and, and and so forth yeah that's great yeah very very important piece of the puzzle as well which we didn't even touch on today but um that'll uh, leave us something to talk about in the next episode <laughs> so Igor, I want to thank you again very much for your time. If people want to get a hold of you um, uh, online or otherwise, what's what's the best way for people to find you? Uh, so you can uh, go on Twitter. I'm under Igor Dragovich or idragovich26 is my username. I also have a personal blog at uh, idragovich.wordpress.com. Uh, you can access that also via Twitter. And uh, on my website, there's a lot of other ways you can contact me and uh, a bio on me. Great, great. Yeah, we'll definitely include a link, as I mentioned, to all those uh, things on the show notes for this episode. Igor, thank you very much for being on the show, and I uh, appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Andrew. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the True Condos Podcast. Remember, your positive reviews make a big difference to the show. To learn more about condo investing, become a True Condos subscriber by visiting truecondos.com.